Sounds good. Well, welcome, Mercygate. Uh, thank you for uh, working with us in terms of uh, changing up somewhat of our, our plans. Thank you for joining us online. I'd encourage you, uh, as soon as we're finished up here, to join us on the Zoom meeting uh, right afterwards. I'd also encourage you, as the email went out, uh, to perhaps sign up uh, for us to be able to meet with you as pastors. And so, we, again, what we want to do is make sure we're keeping in contact with all of you throughout this time. During these seasons, we can kind of lose touch with one another. I know we all feel the temptation of that. And so uh, we want to be intentional to be uh, connecting with you. So it would help us if you could sign up and uh, we'll get those things rolling. We'll stay connected throughout this season. Uh, a few things that we're going to be praying for, uh, and then we're going to jump right into the sermon time, is Grace Life College and Seminary in Monrovia, Liberia. Uh, this is uh, one of the connections that our denomination has, but we're also utilizing that connection to serve uh, Pastor Mark and, of course, then send the barrels that we've been filling up uh, over there. And so... God is kind of uniquely putting our, our, our streams together, and, um, and there's some good partnership that we believe uh, may result. Uh, so we want to keep Grace Life College and Seminary uh, in prayer. Also then, Covenant Mercies. Uh, Covenant Mercies, uh, led by Doug Hayes from uh, Covenant Fellowship. He came a few years ago to present the ministry. I know a handful of you uh, support uh, some of the kids in Africa as a result of that. And so we want to just be praying for them and also then just pray for Grace City Church of the Northeast. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, we thank you that even when we wander from you, that you are still um, willing in your mercies to come after us. Um, and as the as the call to worship said, your, you, your aim is to bring us home. Your aim is to bring us to Zion. Your aim is to bring us into the goodness of your presence. And so, God, what mercy you have shown on us, and we thank you for it. God, we thank you for uh, the work that you're doing globally. We thank you for uh, Grace Life College and Seminary. We thank you for Diana Thomas, who leads that. We thank you for all the students that are a part of that. We thank you for the gospel presence that they are uh, there and in the surrounding countries as well. And so, God, we pray for our, our denomination's uh, partnership with what's going on there, but we also thank you that by your providence, you've connected us as well. And so we ask your blessing upon uh, our partnership together. I, I pray that all the uh, details of getting barrels over to Liberia and seeing perhaps other leaders from Pastor Mark's church uh, trained up through Grace Life Center. We, we pray that you would kind of iron out the details uh, of this partnership to see your gospel go forward, to see even churches planted in the surrounding area of Monrovia, Liberia. God, we also then uh, lift up Covenant Mercies. Thank you for Doug Hayes. Thank you for the vision that you've given him. Thank you for the burden that you've placed upon his heart. Uh, and God, we ask um, that you would grant wisdom, particularly in this season of COVID, where mission in some sense becomes halted or, or just becomes all the more difficult. God, we pray that your gospel would move forward. We pray for the particular um, orphanages on the ground, the schools on the ground. I pray that you would protect them from COVID. And I pray that this season would be a fruitful season for the sake of your gospel. 
And finally, uh, we want to pray for just Grace City Church of the Northeast. Lord, thank you uh, for the connection that we have to them as, um, as seven years ago they sent us to plant this church. Lord, thank you for the connection, the relational connection, the encouragement. Um, and we also then, of course, pray for the leadership of Grace City of the Northeast, and we pray that you would lead them and guide them through all the similar challenges that we're all facing during this season. But I pray, as I pray for our own church, God, that you would um, do a work to preserve and promote the unity that you died to attain. Uh, Jesus, we, we commit ourselves to you, and with all our various perspectives on what's happening and what the solution is to it all, we pray, uh, Lord, that you would be that which bonds us together uh, in the unity of your spirit. Uh, so may you be honored, whether it's in Grace City Church of the Northeast or here. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Revelation chapter, chapter 2. Uh, just before reading that, uh, I, I do just want to say thank you uh, for many of you who responded to the email this past week. Um, I know some of you are a little bit on the left and some of you are on the right of the issue. Some of you have concerns. Other of you are pretty frustrated with the restrictions at hand. Uh, but the feedback that we received from you was altogether encouraging. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Um, not only thank you, but also then take the moment to just emphasize the fact that the, the issues that stand before us are, are disputable issues. We're going to come with our differing perspectives. Um, and the point then is this, is that our unity is not found in trying to get everyone else to fit our perspective. Um, unity is found, of course, in Christ and what he's done. It's the gospel that binds us together. And so even when it comes to our differences, we, we want the Bible to uh, influence our perspectives on what is happening. And yet when it comes down to our unity, we want to be very careful to recognize that we do not have unity based upon common perspectives, cultural perspectives. We share in unity because of all that Christ has done uh, for us. So let that be during this season. I know there's concerns and I know there's frustrations, but let that be kind of a ruling truth. Uh, let that truth guard your hearts during this season that Christ is the essence. He is the substance of our unity together as a church. Well, Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. The apostle John is receiving instruction from Christ himself, and Jesus declares to him, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, he states, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you, you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned 
the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from when you have from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Passionless devotion. Labor without love. It's a deadly combination for any significant relationship. Simply going through the motions without actual true interest or love or connection to the other person is not much of a relationship at all. Passionless devotion is deadly for any significant relationship. As we see in our text today, it's passionless devotion that is an altogether real temptation for the church in her relationship to Jesus Christ. While this is the point of the immediate passage, as applied to the church in Ephesus, we must not fail to realize that the text is to be read to all the seven churches. We see that in chapter 1, verse 4. It's not seven, seven different letters set, sent to each uh, church. It's all one letter, the book of Revelation, sent to these churches. They got to hear, in other words, like one another's strengths and weaknesses. Their dirty laundry, in some sense, was hung for all to see. And the point of this was not so that Christ would be smearing the integrity of these churches. It's these seven churches, remember, it's the number of fullness or completeness, and therefore what is the experience of these seven individual churches would be something of a temptation for all those churches, and not just for those seven churches, but for all churches throughout all generations. They would suffer some of these same temptations in one degree or another, and therefore whether it's the church in Ephesus or the church in Wissanoming, the text shows us that passionless devotion is a real temptation for God's people. But also, note this, it's a deadly temptation. Of the seven churches, there are only two churches that Jesus warns with elimination, with spitting them out of his mouth, or in this case, removing their lampstand. Only two churches are warned with elimination, and both are churches whose love has grown cold. Their viability as a church is actually dependent on this particular point. Passionless devotion is therefore a real temptation for a church, and it is a deadly temptation. So here's our main point this morning. Our devotion to Christ must simply be attended with passion for Christ. Our devotion to Christ must be attended with passion for 
Christ. It's all about the relational substance when it comes down to it. Truth and devotion must never be an end in itself. Truth and devotion must always flow from and point us to a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. The biblical illustration, the familiar one, is is with Mary and Martha. Martha busy working, 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 which wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but she was missing the one necessary thing, and that was passionate relationship to Jesus Christ, to sit at Jesus' feet, to do the one necessary thing amidst all the other busyness. So our devotion to Christ must be attended with passion for Christ. In verse 1, Jesus dictates to John, saying to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Is this an actual angel or not? It's the big discussion. Uh, Nowhere else in Revelation does angel refer to anything else but a spiritual being. And so there's mystery, however, as to how a physical letter is to be written to a spiritual being. I don't know what that's all about, but it seems to more so refer to this heavenly authority over the church, as as if this angel stands as a heavenly bailiff who, who gives witness to and protection over the church. And therefore, the instruction is to be received with something of heavenly weight and authority. As we will see from each of the churches, Jesus will reference back to the vision that John had of him in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And the specific characteristics of Jesus, as mentioned for each church, carries something of specific importance for the instruction then that unfolds. So for the church of Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus says to him, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. As we consider this call to passionate devotion, we must keep in mind that it's Jesus who holds the stars, that is the angelic host in his hand. It's simply to emphasize his authority and power over all, by which he keeps and sustains his church. He leverages his authority over heaven and earth in order to keep and sustain his church. But also notice he's not only holding the stars, but what he's doing is he's walking in the midst of the lampstands. He's walking in the midst of the churches. It's to say that he is the one who keeps and sustains his church, and he is the one who is present with his church. Christ is present, we could say, in his power to keep and to sustain his people. He's not an absentee landlord. He's not some disinterested savior. He's not divided in his interest. No, Christ is present in his power to keep and sustain his people. And it's that vision then of Christ that that character of the exalted son of man that we see in chapter 1 that then sets the table for how Jesus will first commend the church of Ephesus for their devotion to truth. They are devoted to truth. But then secondly, 
It's his character, the one who holds the stars and walks among the lampstands. It's, it's, it's that that sets the table by which he will confront their lack of passion for Christ. And finally then, he will place a sobering condition before them. So his characteristics are to set the table for how he goes about this instruction. So let's consider those three. The first, the commendation. As the one who is present in his power to keep and sustain his church, he states first to, I know your works. I know is a repeated phrase given to each of the seven churches. Jesus intimately knows his church. He intimately knows us. Why? Because he's present with us. He's walking among the lampstands. And herein, he commends the church of Ephesus for their works. And then for their labor. And then for their patient endurance in their devotion to truth against all kinds of evil and all kinds of opposition. Ephesus was a unique city. It was the capital of Asia. It was a political center, as one historian named it. It was the supreme metropolis of Asia. And so it was filled with all kinds of political strife and corruption that would dwarf a lot of the stuff that we are even going through in our nation. Ephesus was also where there was several trade routes that converged and therefore it was a place of commerce and, and entertainment. As one historian saw it, he says that it would have been an ancient version of Vanity Fair. But it was also then this religious hot spot. It, it was the location where the temple of Diana resided, a temple that was two football fields long that towered over the city. And it was attended by a few thousand priests and priestesses who acted as religious prostitutes in worship to Diana. This little church was amidst all of that. It was a church that lived amidst all kinds of opposition to truth. But we also know, as Paul prophesied to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, that wolves would come to the church. It's opposition to truth from without, but also then from within. False teachers would arise within the church. As we see in verse 6, these are uh, named apostles or Nicolaitans. Early church writing assumes that this group was led by a na man named uh, Nicholas, who was perhaps called as a deacon in Acts chapter 6. And he was a man who then led many away from Christ and into all kinds of idolatry and sexual Im immorality. This this, again, is just to show this is what the church was facing. All kinds of opposition from without and within. But then to have the gladness of the master say, well done. I know your works. I know this hasn't been easy. I know your labor, toil, blood, sweat, and tears that have gone in 
to your devotion to truth. It hasn't been easy to be devoted to this truth or to your patient endurance. It's been a hard road for this church. But they've devoted themselves to truth. A devotion to, to truth that was altogether exhausting. It, it was necessary of great effort and energy. It was a work of endurance to devote themselves to truth, and it was therefore deserving of the glad commendation of their master, Jesus Christ. The question then for us, Mercy Gate, is can the master say this of us? that we give ourselves to this kind of work, when even we stand in a time where all kinds of political information is all around us, where endless platforms of entertainment are, 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 are there to be enjoyed, where all kinds of comforts compete then for our own attention, will we be those who make glad the heart of our master? Will we work to prioritize truth? Will we be those who, can, who, who, who Jesus can say to us, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your faithful grit when it comes down to it, not giving up, enduring in your devotion to truth amidst all kinds of tantalizing distractions, all kinds of news feeds, all kinds of perspective. Can he say that of us? Can we look back on this past season and say we made the heart of our master glad. We've devoted ourselves to truth. This last season has certainly tested our devotion to truth. I, I have felt it. I'm sure you have felt it. It's the disconnect at work and therefore, you know, left up to our own decisions to do what we kind of want to do in the moment. I do want to say that I have been incredibly encouraged, even uh, this morning, hearing conversations about the different things that have been happening in our DCs. Um, you're giving yourself to truth, studying through Philippians, studying through the book of Acts. It's, it's been wonderful to hear that this has been a time where God's people have pressed into truth, that you have worked. It's not easy, whether it's online or in person, to show up in these moments, to give your time and attention, to truly devote something to a focused study of God's word. There's something to that that requires effort and energy. We realize it's not altogether easy. We could sit at home and do nothing and in some sense be satisfied in it. And yet, what God calls us to is a devotion to this truth. So in a real sense, man, I've been encouraged by what I've been hearing, but I also equally carry something of a concern for us as a church. I hate Zoom. <laughs> I don't want to see your faces on Zoom. I want to see you in person, right? But this is the way in which in this season we can connect with one another. It, it's a small way to devote ourselves. Like we're, we're not going to get persecuted for it. We're not going to suffer for it. 
But yes, it takes work. You may not like it, but it can be part of our labor to devote ourselves to truth. So I'd encourage you to that end, to connect in ways that we can during this season in order that we too might be devoted to truth. One of the other concerns that I have, just to pastorally kind of put my heart before you, is, is I'm concerned for our, our kids, MGC kids. You know, one of the ways over the last so many years that uh, we've loved to see ourselves devoted to truth is by training our children up and, and, and catechizing them and having songs that they're learning, songs that teach them truth, having Bible lessons and, and stories that would point them to God's word. And so, folks, it's important that a time where we don't have all the, the in-person opportunities to devote ourselves to truth, that we're doing what we can kind of within our own homes to faithfully point our children the truth. This is the work. This is part of the devotion um, that is necessary in this season for us in pointing our children to truth. And so may we, Mercy Gate, be devoted to truth, seeking something of the Master's own commendation of our work and our activity. But then secondly, verse 4. There's a swift change of tone. And we must remember here that God chastens those whom he loves. This change of tone, it does not lessen Jesus' love for his church. It actually affirms and proves his love all the more. So Jesus states, verse 4, But I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. Folks, they are on a they are a church that is on the verge of dead orthodoxy. You may say, what in the world is dead orthodoxy? It's where our sense of spiritual significance, it's where our, our identity is placed in what we know or what we do rather than who Jesus is and what he's done. Do you see the, the distinction it, in some sense, is a labor without love. It's duty without relational connection. And that, according to Scripture, is deadly. It actually undermines all that Christ achieved for us. He saved us to himself, who is the truth, right? You see, to devote oneself to truth without devoting yourself to him who is truth is like we've said before, nothing but religious prostitution. We'll take all the benefits of what God is supposed to give us, but we won't actually dive into long-term relationship with him. We want God's truth without true relationship. This is what we call dead orthodoxy. This is what we call cold religiosity, it's labor without love, it's passionless devotion. But furthermore, I want you to follow me here. What is in view here is not only the fact that they are abandoning their first love, Jesus, but they are suppressing his love at work through them. As one commentator states, 
he says, the Ephesians leaving their first love is their suppression of the spiritual gifts, which were necessary for the Christians' community's witness to be effective. Ephesians leaving their first love is their suppression of the spiritual gifts which were necessary for the Christian community's witness to be effective. You see, not only is Jesus jealous for relational intimacy with his own people, but he is jealous to see his presence made known through his people. We are a kingdom and priests. This is what he died for. He died to make us a kingdom and priests, channels of his very own presence, lampstands that uphold the flame of his presence. But his presence isn't realized where there is no true relational intimacy. You can't give away what you haven't received. You can't lead others in public to where you haven't been in private with Jesus. You can't be a channel of his presence if you haven't spent time in his presence. Charles Spurgeon will illustrate this idea this way. He says, we shall never love Christ much except we live near to him. Love to God is dependent on our nearness to him. It is just like the planets and the suns and, and the sun. While why some are why are some, I'll get it right, why are some of the planets cold? Why do they move at so slow a rate? Simply because they are so far from the sun. Put them where the planet Mercury is and they will be a boiling heat and spin round the sun in rapid orbits. So, beloved, if we live near to Christ, we cannot help loving him. The heart that is near Jesus must be full of his love. And when we live days and weeks and months without personal intercourse, without real fellowship, how can we maintain love toward a stranger? He must be a friend. And we must stick close to him as he sticks close to us. Closer than a brother or else we shall never have our first love. But you see, many learn to live at what they perceive as being a safe distance from him. They don't want to burn for him. They don't want to spin, as it were, for him. Because we know we'll have to give up some of our greatest comforts or entrust him with some of our deepest vulnerabilities. But I want to ask you this. Aren't you tired of the tasteless comforts? Aren't you tired of, of thinking that those particular things that the world would offer that, that is earthly, Aren't you tired of the fact that they just don't satisfy? They leave you once again tasteless. It's just as if they're consumed in a moment of pleasure and gone. They do not satisfy. 
You're left all together once again, just kind of reeling, desiring more, desiring more, but never satisfied. Aren't you tired of tasteless comforts? And aren't you tired of managing your own vulnerabilities? You were not made to manage your own vulnerabilities. You weren't made to defend your hurt. You weren't made for that. Your shoulders aren't broad enough for that. Your emotional stamina can't uphold that reality. You just can't. You weren't made for it. And that's kind of the point of the passage as you see chapter 1 into chapter 2. Who is to be elevated in our hearts and minds but the person of Jesus? The ancient of days, the son of God, the alpha, the omega, the one who knows the beginning from the end, the one who holds the stars in his hand, the, the ruler of the kings of this earth. And yet the one who is altogether present for his people. He is the one <clears throat> who keeps and sustains his people. Aren't you tired of tasteless comforts? Aren't you tired of managing your own vulnerabilities? Won't you surrender to him? Won't you give yourself to him? Won't, won't, won't you dive into relationship with him? Saying, Lord, all the things that I think I have together and all the things that I don't have together, I bring to you. All the appetites that are at work within my soul and in my body, I'm bringing it to you. Be my satisfaction. Be the comfort that I've always longed for. Christian, just know this, that this is, this is a, a routine part of the Christian walk. It's just to continually say, Lord, I, I, I've been trying to find satisfaction elsewhere, or, or I've gone back to my self-sufficiency and my self-preservation, and I need once again to come to you and say, you must be for me, all that I cannot be for myself. It's that act of surrender. Would you surrender to him? And therein, come to know the blessing of passionate devotion. Now finally, Jesus places a condition upon the church of Ephesus. He's commended the church of Ephesus, as we've seen. He's confronted the church of Ephesus. And now he places a startling condition upon it. Verse 5, he states, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus that they stand at a crossroads. They can either choose removal or renewal. They can choose removal or renewal. They can continue as they are and suffer removal. And by the way, this idea of removal is the language that's used in the Old Testament for Israel. 
where they refused to obey God. And what did God do? In some sense, he removed them and replaced them with the church. Where Israel, as you remember, was promised this idea of becoming a kingdom of priests, they never met the condition. And what do we have in chapter 1? But we come to find that the church now has been made a kingdom of priests. What Christ did in some sense was now give the promises to Israel to the church. And so in this sense, he's using some similar language. Just as he warned Israel, now he's warning the church of Ephesus, I will remove you. I'll replace you with a people who are passionately devoted to me. He he is saying dead orthodoxy, passionless devotion is not an option for Christ's church. It is not that for which he has died. They may suffer removal. Or as Jesus says, they can remember their original walk with Christ. They can repent and they can return to do the works they did it first. If you know the story of the church of Ephesus, how the Spirit came in power, Acts chapter 20, and made a small number of folks into these radical witnesses for the sake of Jesus Christ. Oh, in that text, how they knew the joy of their Savior. Jesus is saying, oh, church of Ephesus, remember, go back to the beginning. Remember the experiences of our relationship with one another. And when you've remembered, oh, turn back, repent. Let the remembrance of Christ's kindness lead you to repentance, to turn away from this passionless devotion, from placing your significance in whatever you know or do for Christ. It's to immerse yourself rather than in relationship to Christ and get back to being a true light, a true witness for him, a beacon of his presence. Return then to your first works. And again then, this challenge to them of repenting is all to be seen in light of Christ, who again is present with his people, walking among the lampstands, and he's present in his power, holding the seven stars to keep and sustain his people. What's the purpose of all that? It's this, what Jesus demands of us, he's ready and able to supply to us. He is jealous for us, so when he puts this condition upon us, he's also putting the grace there on the table, saying, oh, I can bring change to your hearts. I can bring transformation to your hearts. Let my kindness lead you to repentance, lead you to restoration. I can bring you to a place of renewal. There's the condition. It can be removal or renewal. And that in some sense, even for us as a church, is a condition that he places upon us. God can remove us. 
he has the right to do that. But this condition is not in some sense to scare us. It's not to cause us to like resort to some sort of cold religiosity as if we have to busy ourselves and do more stuff. Once again, what Jesus wants is passionate devotion. He wants all of you. He's died for that. And therefore, for you to only give part is not what Christ has died for. He's died for all of you. And he will have all of you. So this is then, just in conclusion, in summary, this is the commendation, this is the confrontation, and this is the condition Jesus places upon his church. But with this condition finally comes then this promise for all those who remember, who repent, who return to do the works that they previously did at first. He states this, those then who repent will be those who conquer or who overcome. And Jesus states, and I will grant to eat of the tree of life. He'll give us this promise, this promise to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life, of course, points us all the way back to the book of Genesis. But what it does is it promises something of renewing grace that he would bring to us. It, it reminds us of the incredible forgiveness that he's had to, uh, toward us. It reminds us then of the time when Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day interacting with the Lord, with unhindered relationship. What Jesus is saying is that if you press in to this passionate devotion, oh, there will be, that will be the way, that will be the pathway from which you will overcome. That you will overcome, that you will know something of his final forgiveness, that you will know something of his final renewing power, that you will know something of just the untold mysteries of intimacy and relationship with him. Those who overcome, we could say it this way, are those who make a regularity of repentance. There are people who, who know something of the kindness of their Savior. It's the kindness of the Savior that leads them to repentance when they see that their heart is, is harboring different aspects and not given fully to passionate devotion to Jesus. Oh, it's, it's those who, who turn to him and repent and say, oh, he's kind, and so I'll, I'll throw my heart and surrender at him again. Those who make repentance just a regular discipline of life for those who overcome. It's those who actually one day will fully and finally experience the incredible forgiveness he provides, this unforeseen renewal that he will bring about, but also then the untold intimacy that will be found in relationship to him. These are the ones who find Jesus altogether kind.
His kindness leads them to repentance. Oh, to taste of his kindness. In this season, in this particular weird COVID season with all the craziness that's going, political, civil, otherwise, are you devoted to truth? Are you devoted to truth? But more precisely, are you passionately devoted to him who is truth? Our devotion to Christ must be attended with a passion for Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that you would actually come to us and say, I want relationship. Thank you that you would even be willing to bring your church to account and say, I'm glad for all the things that you are doing, but oh, how desperately I desire relationship with you. God, we know that devotion and relationship don't stand at odds to one another. Our love for the truth and our love for you should not stand at odds for one another. But God, during this season, would you stir our hearts to a devotion to truth that flows from and always points us to just kind of a passionate endeavor to go deeper in relationship with you. So may this be the fruitfulness of this season, we pray. Things are different. Things are odd. Stir our hearts. Stir our hearts to be devoted to truth but passionate for the one who is truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name.